You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual There's so much I could talk about at the top of this week's show. There's just so much to rant about, so much in the news. But a few weeks ago, I promised you all something light, something fun at the top of an upcoming show. And I really haven't delivered on that promise. And some of you out there in Twitter land have noticed, like Jer P, who tweeted at me, I thought you were supposed to talk about something fun at the top of the show today. I wrote back to JRP and said, I'm sorry, I wanted to, but events kept intervening, shit kept happening, and shit keeps happening. But you know what? I'm going to come through for you guys this week. Something fun. I am going to talk about something light. I am not going to talk about all the crap in the news this week, like the fact that Scott Walker wants to build a wall around Canada. Maybe if he's Donald Trump's running mate, we will have a wall along our border with Canada and a wall along our border with Mexico, and then we will all be safely tucked inside our country with all our guns, where nothing bad can ever happen to us ever again. And I'm not going to talk about the fact that Chris Christie wants to hire the founder of FedEx, which always knows where your packages are, to keep track of immigrants with presumably barcodes and warehouses and locked trucks, which is how they always know where your package is. And I'm not going to talk about the fact that Ben Carson, who condemned fetal cell research, was revealed to have conducted fetal cell research himself. And his poll numbers in the GOP race for the presidential nomination promptly doubled at the same time the GOP base is calling on congressional Republicans to shut down the government because they are so very outraged that Planned Parenthood is legally making fetal tissue available to researchers like Ben Carson. Maybe the ultimate example of I-O-K-I-Y-A-R. Google it if you don't know what that means. And I'm not going to talk about the ongoing fallout from the Ashley Madison hack. And I'm not going to talk about those very straight, very religious polygamists who are suing for the right to marry or the supporters of quote-unquote biblical marriage who are blaming the gays for this. Spoiler alert. This won't be a spoiler for anyone who's actually ever opened a Bible. But all of the marriages in the Old Testament are polygamous. And the New Testament urges Christians not to marry anyone at all. So really, biblical marriages, supporters of biblical marriage, are plural or non-existent. Pick one, supporters of biblical marriage. But you can't pin this on the gays. And I'm not going to talk about the raid on the offices of RentBoy.com, a website for male escorts and their male clients, conducted for some mysterious reason by the Department of Homeland Security, which is now protecting us from well-hung twinks and muscle daddies with shaved titties. Lots of people are out there talking about it, including the editorial board of the New York Times, which condemned it. I'm not going to talk about any of those things. I'm going to talk about some things that are fun and light, like exploding kittens. That's fun. It's a new card game from Elon Lee, Shane Small, and Matthew Immen, who is the genius behind the comics website The Oatmeal. It's great. It's fun. My husband and I are huge fans of card games, hearts, spades, cribbage, schnapsen. So when Matthew Immen, again, the guy behind the brilliant The Oatmeal, combined forces with these game designers and announced a Kickstarter campaign for this new card game, we kicked in right away. They hoped to raise $10,000. They wound up raising nearly $9 million selling this card game, producing it for people. It's genius. It's really fucking fun. We've been playing it constantly 
since we got it in the mail. And I recommend it. You want something fun at the top of the show? There you go. Exploding kittens. Lots of fun. Also fun with all the talk about cheating, the Ashley Madison hack, and sex workers getting busted, the Rent Boy bust. It was fun for me personally this week to get an update from a reader, a satisfied Savage Love customer who happens to be a sex worker who got married this weekend to her long-term boyfriend. That was one of the things I helped her with. She was doing sex work. Her boyfriend was having a problem with that. We talked about it. It helped. They're still together. Now they're married, which I would like to throw in the face of everyone out there who says that marriage is somehow antithetical to writing your own rules or being a sex radical or doing your own thing and that if you marry, you have to be monogamous or you're signing up for that or endorsing that. Not necessarily so. Marriage is whatever the two people who are married to each other say that it is. It is only as oppressive an institution as any individual couple elects to make it. And I don't think this couple is going to elect to make their marriage oppressive. But she wrote to say that they married this weekend and among the guests, one of her former long-term clients and his wife, who knows and approves of their relationship because it helped them through a hard time themselves where their marriage was collapsing. They weren't connecting sexually. They both agreed that they could do what they needed to do, as I say, to stay married and stay sane. And rather than trawl Ashley Madison, rather than hit up a million people, he saw this one particular sex worker who, she writes in her email, told him he was being shitty to his wife. Not by seeing her, but by the other stuff that was going on in the marriage. This sometimes happens. You talk to sex workers all the time and they will tell you that Maybe the sex takes 10 minutes and then there's 40 minutes left and it's all conversation or 50 minutes left and it's talk. So many sex workers wind up being marriage counselors on the side, wind up being therapists, wind up helping their clients work on their social skills. So then this man went home and told his wife the things that the sex worker that he had been seeing regularly was telling him about him when he confided in her about their marriage and that she was siding with the wife in the dispute. And that helped open his eyes. It helped them reconnect this conversation. This man was having ongoing conversation. This man was having with his sex worker. So at her wedding this weekend, four years after her professional relationship with this man ended among the guests, this man and his grateful wife, we hear about stuff when it doesn't work on this show. We hear about, the problems. We hear about marriages destroyed by cheating, for example. We rarely hear about the ones saved by them. Some are saved. People call in, people write when they have issues. People don't write so often, don't call in so often when everything's going just fine. It can skew our sample, can make us seem like sex is always a problem, like everything would be just hunky-dory rosy if everybody kept their pants on at all times. Sometimes sex, though, it's the solution. All right, there you go. Two fun things, exploding kittens and sex workers who got married this weekend. I think those are both really fun things, especially sex workers who got married this weekend with clients and their spouses in attendance. Also fun today, tons of your questions and coming up on the Magnum, Mark Oppenheimer, one of the hosts of the new podcast on Orthodox, brought to us by Tablet. We have a conversation about Jewy things and Christy things and sexy things all on today's show. Hi, Dan. This is a 29-year-old straight male. My partner and I have been in an open relationship for about three years now. 
both of us have had the pleasure to uh, meet someone outside of our relationship who happened to be the same person. We both fell in love with her. Um, she's returned that love, and we are moving in together. Uh, and it's awesome, and it's great, and I couldn't be happier. Uh, with this move prompted uh, my partner and I to come out to our families. I came out to my mother uh, about the open relationship. She seemed to receive it well. And then a couple of days pass, and I get an email from her saying that she essentially doesn't want anything to do with my fiance or uh, my uh, other partner. This is absolutely devastating. She's basically blaming my partner, my partners for corrupting me, um, stating that I used to have morals and that I've been on the steady decline and yada, yada, yada. My mother is a wonderful woman, but she has always been homophobic. So I have a feeling that she is uncomfortable learning that my partner is queer, who is also in love with another woman. So I'm trying to write my response to this email. It's really broken my heart over the last week. Uh, I've been bouncing back and forth about what I want to say to her. Basically, what I want to say is, well, you can't see me if you can't handle seeing my partner. I want to be more lenient about uh, our tertiary partner because I know it's not typical um, and I kind of want to ease her into this process, but she doesn't seem to be wanting to deal with anybody. She said she would still see me when I came to visit and wants nothing to do with my partner who we've been together for five years, our partner together. We've all been together for about two years. So my mother has met my partner uh, over and over and again, says she loves her, says she is happy to have her part of the family and now this. So any help you could give any advice you have that I could say back to my mother in this email would be greatly appreciated. It never ceases to amaze me how similar the place right now in family dynamics and culturally that poly people find themselves in is to where gay people were 10, 20, 30 years ago and even some gay people today are. So I'm going to give you the advice that I give to gay young people and lesbian young people and bi young people when they're coming out to their families and their families have their big shit fit is that you tell your mom that you will listen to her. You will see her. She doesn't have to see your partner if she doesn't want to for a year that she has a year to have her tantrum. She has a year to do some reading. She has a year to think about this. And then if she wants to continue to see you, continue to have you in her life, she's got to get the fuck over it. And this is, I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm not telling you to stick a knife in your uh, primary partner or your tertiary partner. I'm not telling you to do anything. I haven't really told lots of gay guys to do. You say to mom, okay, and dad, okay, I realize this is really hard for you. Tell you what, let's make a deal. I won't rub your nose in it. I'm not going to bring my boyfriend around for a year. Here are the books I want you to read. Here are the conversations that we're going to have and I want to keep the keep communicating. But at the end of this year, if you want to see me, if you want me in your life, you got to get over this shit. In a circumstance like this, where a parent is being homophobic, where a parent is not accepting her child's own agency and her child's adult relationships. And again, this is shit that happened to gay people 30, 40 years ago. A gay kid would come out and the parents would blame the partner. A gay kid would come out because he had a boyfriend or they were in a long-term serious relationship. 
when people were only coming out in their tw- late 20s and 30s, often it was because they had never married and they were in a long-term relationship. They would come out and the parents would look at their kid who just told them that they were gay and then their eyes would go to the boyfriend or the partner and blame him for what he did to their kid. You turned my kid gay. Oh, my God. And they would direct all their hate and rage at the partner. And that's exactly what your mother is doing right now. She is not happy about the fact that you are in a polyamorous, committed, stable relationship. But she doesn't want to be mad at you because she wants to have a relationship with you. So she's going to be mad at your fiancé. Because that relationship she could take or leave. And the trick is to convince your mother that the relationship she has with you now that you're an adult comes bundled together with the relationship she must have with your partner. But you're going to model for your mother some qualities your mother isn't modeling for you right now. Patience, compassion, understanding. You understand this is difficult for her? You're going to give her a year. You're going to be patient during that year. And you're going to be compassionate. Just acknowledging that this is difficult for her. Just telling her that you understand that this is difficult for her. And that's why you're going to give her some time is the compassionate thing to fucking do. And at the end of that year, you expect the same in return. That she will be patient and compassionate and understanding. That she will accept these women as your partners. And if she can't, then you are going to see a whole lot less of her. You're going to be a whole lot less involved in her life than you are now because you're an adult and these people are important to you and you are not going to saw them off every time you want to see your mom or every time your mom wants to come over to your house or whatever else. Your family is accepted into the whole family or not, but you won't be compartmentalized like this. In the same way that some gay guy 30 years ago, the boyfriend was right to tell his parents that he wasn't going to go to his sister's wedding without his partner, that he wasn't going to come home for Christmas without his boyfriend. And that's what changed so many families around the gay shit was the gay kid drawing a line in the sand. And you now at this stage, poly person, poly people, you have to draw that same line in the sand with your families to use the leverage that you have at your disposal to bring them around just as we brought our families around. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old woman currently dating this 26-year-old guy um, for the past two or three months. It started out pretty casual, but now it's definitely moving more toward the relationship. And um, I really like him, and he likes me. It's going very well, except for um, a problem we're having in bed. He really wants me to be, like, very vocal and talk dirty and basically like yelling and I'm a person I'm not quiet but I'm not yelling by any means and I just feel like it's a lot of pressure and I feel like if I do that I'm just putting on some acts for him and it really takes me out of the moment it's just not my thing I don't like talking dirty and you know I've tried it I just don't like it it's not for me um but he seems very insistent on this and seems to think it's more of a problem with me being inhibited or something so I'm starting to think maybe this is just a deal breaker. I don't know if it's something I should just uh, try for him or if he's being a dick. Try for him or is he being a dick? One of those instances where it might not be an either or question. You could try for him and he could be being a dick about this, but that doesn't mean necessarily you shouldn't try for him. Maybe 
if he's not being too colossal a dick about it. Uh, what I would tell you and I would tell him is to stop framing this as talk dirty to me or scream or yell in bed and instead to frame it as let's talk to each other. Let's fuck and converse simultaneously. The key, again, as always, to beginner training wheel dirty talk in bed is to tell them what you're going to do, tell them what you're doing, tell them what you just did. I'm going to fuck the shit out of you. I am fucking the shit out of you. I just fucked the shit out of you. If you are someone who's shy about dirty talk and your partner is the one who wants you to make with the dirty talk, then your partner has to take some responsibility for eliciting that. That's where the conversation comes in. That's where instead of him prompting you, him asking you simple questions that don't give you performance anxiety around you saying just the right sort of dirty talk thing that's going to tap right into Whatever part of his reptile brain needs that dirty talk. So he says to you, instead of waiting for you to say, I am going to fuck you. I am fucking you. I just fucked you. He says to you, what are you going to do? What are we doing? What are you doing to me? What are you doing? And you answer the question simply. What are you doing? I am licking your balls. How hard is that to say? Just very descriptive, very matter of fact. But the funny thing about I am licking your balls is it sounds like dirty talk when someone's balls are in your mouth, it really does. It can't not sound like anything else when someone's balls are in your mouth or near your mouth or we're just in your mouth and you then pop them out to say that. It's going to sound filthy even though it's pretty simple and merely descriptive. So give yourself permission to be merely descriptive and he needs to take some responsibility for drawing out of you the sorts of things he'd like to hear by asking you – the right sort of kind, gentle, baby step questions. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight male looking to get into pegging and anal sex with my fiance. I've done quite a bit of research into all things anal and feel comfortable with rimming and how to have the sex, but I've run into conflicting information regarding the cleaning of the anus. Uh, many suggest you using anal douches or enemas, but I found others who claim that their use can make your body dependent on them to have bowel movements as well as putting you at risk for STIs. Help? The Bible for this sort of thing back in the 80s and 90s was Dr. Jack Morin's groundbreaking book, Anal Pleasure and Health. You might want to pick up a copy. You don't want to use commercial douches. You don't want to use soaps. You don't want to use anything that might irritate your delicate little tissues back there. But some water and a douche bulb, just plain lukewarm or slightly warm water and a douche bulb, it isn't going to make you dependent on douching to have bowel movements because you're not going to get the water far enough up your butt to draw anything out that isn't already close to coming out anyway or far down in your GI tract, far enough down that you need to eliminate it before you shove something else up in there. A lot of people don't need to douche at all. They are regular. They get a lot of fiber in their diet and they're self-aware enough and they know their bodies well enough to know when they're empty, to know when they're good to go. And just some experimentation solo with sex toys or fingers will help you to determine whether you are one of those people who can make that kind of guess or determination about yourself and your butt and whether it's good to go. But if you want the confidence of knowing for sure you're good to go – just a douche bulb and some water, fill yourself up, empty yourself out, fill yourself up, empty yourself out until it's clear. 
Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 23-year-old heterosexual female in a large East Coast city, and I had a question about anal sex. I've been dating my boyfriend for a little over a year, and I'm completely in love with him. We have a pretty active sex life, and recently we started experimenting with anal sex. His ex-girlfriend was really into hardcore, rough sex, and he got used to it, and he really likes it, and I often find us having sex in a really rough way that I'm not totally used to. Um, I've had a lot of sex in the past, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been vanilla, I guess is, <laughs> you would qualify it on the show, but it's never... It's never been boring. It's been extremely pleasurable for me. But with my boyfriend, we're having trouble really having an intimate experience that leaves us both satisfied. Honestly, sometimes I feel like feel like a blow-up doll that he just <laughs> shoves his dick into you. But I'm really in love with him. Please don't tell me to dump the motherfucker already because I'm not going to. And I want to keep working on our sex lives. Recently, we've been experimenting with anal sex. As I mentioned, the first time we tried was makeup sex, and I <laughs> I picked a stupid fight with him because I was drunk and I was feeling insecure, and when we made up, he decided to put it in my ass without lube or <laughs> really any warning. I tried to hold in there for him because he was loving it, but I was in so much pain that we had to stop. A few days ago, we tried it again, and we used a lot of lube, and he went slowly, and it should have been good, and I was really trying to be in it, but it hurt a lot, and we did it for a while, but we had to stop before it came because I was just in too much pain. After the whole ordeal, I was in a ball on the floor in so much pain. I went to the bathroom, cleaned up, I took a shower, but quickly, I quickly developed a fever of over 101, and I was sweating profusely at this time I was in perfect health before we had sex and then after I felt like I was gonna shit out my ass and vomit out my mouth at the same time um I don't know if that's normal to get sick after anal sex or what I was doing wrong am I just not meant for anal sex or what's (laughs) what's going on you know what I really like watching? I really like watching uh, professional snowboarders do half pipes and jump on rails and do these crazy fucking tricks. These amazing things. Uh, they just throw themselves around so hardcore. But I don't do those things because I can't. Because I would hurt myself doing those things. I've tried boxes, rails, some little jumps, and I always get fucking hurt. So I don't goddamn do it anymore. I gave it a try. My body can't do it. My body can't do those flips, rails, and jumps. Your body can't do this anal sex shit. Some people just can't do it. Some people, it just doesn't work for them. Their bodies don't respond. They may watch a little rough anal porn and think, God, I wish I could do that. I watch the snowboarding videos. I wish I could do that. I can't. You can't do this. And you must stop. You have to tell your boyfriend, who is an asshole, that you should dump. But I'm not going to tell you to dump him because you told me I'm not supposed to tell you to dump him. But if you hadn't told me not to tell you to dump him, I would be telling you to dump him. Because anybody who, after a fight, thinks jamming his dick up his girlfriend's ass without warning or lube is makeup sex, is an asshole, is a jerk, is a piece of shit who you should dump. And I would tell you to dump if you hadn't already told me I'm not allowed to tell you to dump him. If you hadn't, I would tell you to DTMFA. I'm really worried for you because you keep describing these things that your boyfriend is doing that are 
manipulative, physically abusive. I would class them as violations. And then you ask me what you're doing wrong. You describe all these horrible things that he is doing to you. And then you ask me, what am I doing wrong? Well, one thing you're doing wrong is telling me I'm not allowed to tell you to dump this motherfucker. That's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. The other thing you're doing wrong is that you keep trying anal sex over and over again and expecting a different outcome. What's that definition of insanity again? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome? It doesn't work. It, do, it doesn't work with your body. It makes you feel unwell and it triggers something in you that made you even feel sick and nauseous and horrible and maybe it was the anal sex or maybe it's the asshole you're dating who made you feel sick and horrible. But you need to go to your boyfriend and you need to tell him it's lovely that you had a girlfriend once who was able to have rough anal sex with you. And it's lovely that you enjoy rough anal sex. So long as I am your girlfriend, you will not be enjoying rough anal sex. To be with me, the price of admission that you are going to have to pay is you're not going to be able to do this anymore. Being with me means going without anal, rough or otherwise. Anal with or without lube. Anal with or without warning. Off the menu forever. And if he does it again, with or without warning, with or without lube, Dump him. I'm not talking about whether you should dump him based on what he's already done because I'm not allowed to say that. But I'm telling you to, in the future, dump him if he tries it ever again. From here on out, you are a woman. You are a woman who does not have anal sex. And if your boyfriend tries to have anal sex with you other anyway, your boyfriend is a manipulative, violent, and abusive asshole who on some level, conscious, most likely, or subconscious, is enjoying the pain he is inflicting on you. That kind of person is not boyfriend material or long-term relationship material. That kind of person is restraining order material. Hi, Dan. So I know that you haven't really gone here yet, but I was hoping that you could shed a little light about the Bill Cosby scenario, specifically that he was having sex with women who weren't conscious. I don't know, something about that. I mean, everything about it is really creepy and Spellman had every right to pull all their funding and everyone should pull their funding and he's a bastard and, you know, but there's a hell that's definitely where he's going. However, what is up with him drugging women and having sex with them when they're almost like corpses, when they're dead? I don't know, it freaks me out and um, I'm in a pretty loving, healthy, wonderful relationship. However... I can't stop thinking about the idea that this creeper has sex with women when the women seem to be dead. And I don't know, I guess it's just so upsetting. So I don't know. And I think a lot of people are thinking about this and don't really know how to address the idea that there are people who are so sick that they want to have sex with women who are knocked unconscious and, and like dead. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I would just appreciate a little bit of your point of view about this. Maybe there are like warning signs that we as women should look out for beyond just, you know, trying not to let strangers drug you. I, I don't know. It's, it's just disturbing. It's a simple answer. Why would Bill Cosby drug these women? Because he's a rapist. Why would someone enjoy sex with someone who is unconscious or enjoy raping someone who is unconscious? Uh, wouldn't that 
be a la necrophilia, someone completely non-responsive. Well, rape is often about power and control and you don't have more control over someone. No one is more helpless before you than they are when they are unconscious, when you have knocked them out. Um, I don't think that someone who does this sort of thing is necessarily into necrophilia and is motionless, but they are breathing and they are warm to the touch. Uh, I think that someone would do this because they want to disable someone. They want to have access to that person's body. They want that person in their complete and total control at that moment. And then obviously someone who's rapist doesn't care about their partner's active consent or willing participation or enjoyment of anything that's about to happen to them. So it's irrelevant whether that person is responsive. It may even be a boon to that person as we've seen with date rape drugs and college campuses and other places and other cases exactly like this one. It is a boon to that person for, that, for their victim to be drugged into a state of helpless unconsciousness. I think you're letting a lot of people off the hook actually when you try to make a leap from what Bill Cosby did to a necrophilia fetish. Because what Bill Cosby did is distressingly common and with the easy availability, uh, easy access to these kinds of drugs, your online drug marketplaces, easy uh, to pull off. Necrophilia fetishes are comparatively rare, insanely rare. And one of the things we tell people about rape and sexual assault is not to put all responsibility for protecting yourself from rape or sexual assault onto the shoulders of victims or women, but to be conscious of the risks, right? Don't leave your drink alone in a bar. Don't accept a drink necessarily from a stranger, particularly if that stranger ran off to get you that drink and is bringing it back. If you see it handed to you directly by the bartender, maybe that's fine, right? You'd also don't want people to feel a false sense of security, that if all you had to worry about, you know, the the people who did this sort of thing, drugged women in order to rape them, were necrophiliacs, that's not a large – there aren't that many fucking necrophiliacs in the world. You really have a lot less to worry about. Wouldn't it, it would be great if Bill Cosby's thing was necrophilia. It would be great if the only people who ever drugged and raped women or men were necrophiliacs because it would happen a whole lot less than it does. In a way, some part of your brain is trying to protect you from the awful and distressing facts of the matter, that this is not just Bill Cosby who does this, that this is not just something someone with a very rare and peculiar sexual fetish might do, but this is something that a great many men have done. And not putting responsibility for protecting women on rape on the shoulders of women, but that women need to be aware of the risks. It's not don't accept a drink from an unknown necrophiliac in a bar. It's you might not want to accept a drink from some man you don't know in a bar. You don't leave your drink alone in a bar while you go off to the bathroom because a certain number of men might do this. It's not you don't leave your drink alone in a bar because there might be a necrophiliac around. The odds that there is a necrophiliac around really slim. The odds that there is someone around who might be capable of sexually assaulting you comparatively much higher, sadly and tragically much higher. Hi, Dan. This is a 24-year-old straight female. I've been hooking up with a guy for the last couple of weeks, and we have a couple issues. Um, in some ways, the chemistry is fantastic. 
I'm getting a lot of pleasure, but he doesn't have a practice of giving oral sex. Um, and he comes from a more conservative, socially background. He's a little bit homophobic. He doesn't really get feminism too much. And I'm like an active feminist. So in some ways, this doesn't seem to have the brightest future. But I think we do have like chemistry. And I like to be open-minded towards people who come from socially conservative backgrounds. Um, I guess my question is, do you think people can change. He's 25. I know that he's set in his ways in a lot of ways, but I'm just curious if you think people change at that age. Yeah, people can change. People change all the time. We've seen, take marriage equality, we've seen millions of people change, including social conservatives who've come around on marriage equality. So people can change, particularly even, as we've seen, social conservatives. This guy... 25 years old ain't that old. I don't think that someone at 25 is set in his ways. Someone at 25 usually just hasn't thought about X, Y, or Z very deeply or been challenged on X, Y, and Z very deeply or had their nose rubbed in their own contradictions. Someone who says, I don't go down on women and I don't like feminism and I'm a homophobe because of my social conservative upbringing and conditioning, but hey, let's have tons of premarital sex. We've known each other for two weeks. There's a contradiction there. And you can drive a wedge into that contradiction. You can break someone open by confronting them about those contradictions, particularly as you go down on them or as you fuck the shit out of them. One of the wonderful things about college is you take people from socially conservative backgrounds, you take people from liberal backgrounds, you take people who are frat boys and you put them in the same place with people who are punk rock girls, and sometimes they meet and fall in love and start fucking each other, and then they start talking to each other. And someone realizes that their homophobia, their anti-feminist posture is stuff that was pushed on them or dropped on them, and it's not stuff that really goes to the heart of who they are. It's just things they've adopted as cultural markers, as tribal identities. And when they start to really think about it, particularly in the wake of some awesome fucking sex – they come around. They revise their positions. They begin to have new thoughts about feminists when they're fucking a feminist or feminism or gay people when they meet their feminist girlfriend's gay friends or going down on a woman when the woman who's been going down on them makes all future blowjobs conditional upon reciprocity. I don't think fucking Karl Rove is going to bring Karl Rove around. Right. And I wouldn't, most of you actually probably don't even remember who Karl Rove is at this stage, but I don't think fucking Karl Rove or Donald Trump is going to bring Karl Rove or Donald Trump around. But if you catch a Karl Rove or a Donald Trump early in life, when their beliefs are not fully formed or not fully examined or scrutinized, you can pop their worldview open. You can open their minds by opening their legs sometimes. And I think that window is the ages that you two are at. So I think you can keep fucking this guy with a great chemistry, with a clear conscience, but also with a mission because you're not going to downplay your beliefs. You're obviously not going to make him adopting your beliefs conditional upon fucking, but you will not downplay them. 
and you will have conversations, political conversations, and you will force him to eat his shit or to think about his shit. And you'll think about his shit too. And he'll force you to examine your beliefs and perhaps defend them and vice versa. And then maybe by dint of this relationship, you will make a better person of him and he will make a more skillful, argumentative feminist out of you. Hi, I'm 19. I'm going to be a junior. I'm really young for my age, for, for my class. And I work at a sporting goods store. And um, my manager is really, really hot. And I want to sit on his face. Um, he's 24. He graduated college. And he just, like, he's just, like, really manly. He has a beard. I don't know. He's just really hot. I want to fuck the shit out of him. But, um... Yeah, so I just, I don't want to, like, I'm, I don't want to sexually, like, harass him or make him feel uncomfortable, and it's probably, I know it's probably not a good idea to hit on him at work, but, I mean, he's just really hot, so I was just wondering if I should do anything, or if I should just, like, kind of leave it, or if I should just, you know, wait until I quit, because I'm not going to have this job forever, because... It's just kind of a shitty summer job. So, yeah, I don't know. I was just wondering what I would do. If there's chemistry here and there's not an enormous power imbalance, this isn't a job that really your whole career hinges on. Uh, he's not in a position of abusable authority over you. Neither of you can leverage control over the other out of the situation. Just fucking fuck your boss. Go for it. Tell him that you're into him. You're a teenager in a shitty dead end teenage job that you're probably going to leave soon when you go to college or you go get some other job. And so this isn't like, you know, a college professor fucking a TA. This isn't like a junior partner in a law firm being hit on by a senior partner in a law firm. It's just a couple of young people who are brought together by shitty dead end young people jobs. And one way to make a shitty dead end young person job more enjoyable, one way to pass the time one perk, one benefit to those shitty dead-end low-paying jobs that bring young people together is that sometimes young people at those jobs meet other young people at those jobs whose faces they want to sit on. Go ahead, tell him. Hit on him. Make a pass at him. Go to a party. Make a pass at him. He'll be drunk. Nobody will when he's drunk. And see what he says. He might say, you know, right now I'm your boss. Here's a rain check. And that's an incentive for you to get your resume out there to other employers. Dan, I'm calling to ask your advice about how to deal with a partner who doesn't always tell the truth and has a habit of embellishing or lying. I've been with my girlfriend for two years. We're both in our mid-30s. We live in the Midwest. We have a great relationship. She's wonderful, except that she's a storyteller, and she likes to embellish details. She likes to be really creative and imaginative, and that's part of the reason I love her. But also it seeps into our life and some things that she claims to be true and to be real about herself, I don't really think quite add up. She claims that she has a genetic condition that makes her skin dark and her hair dark and her hair curly. Um, and the reason she says she has this condition is because she looks very, very different from the rest of her family who are all light-skinned and pale and blonde hair, blue-eyed. I think she's beautiful the way she is, but from the outset, she told me that the reason she looks different from her family is because she has a genetic condition that's very, very rare. 
As time went on, she's also said that other things are related to this genetic condition. So she claims she has a caffeine allergy. She claims that her brain works twice as fast as other people's brains. She claims that she has some muscle issues, um, some issues with her joints coming out of place, and a range of other things that she just sort of heaps on to this make-believe genetic condition. Well, maybe it's not make-believe, but I think it is. I've looked it up on the Internet. Um, I've asked doctor friends about it, and nobody seems to think that this is real. I've asked her if there's a name for it. I've asked her if she's ever seen a geneticist or a doctor about it, and she tells me there's no need because it's just a cosmetic genetic disorder. She told me her mom told her that she had it when she was young, and she's just known her whole life that she has this. Now, I think that potentially her father is not her father. Her mom's quite wacky, so maybe her mom made it up. I don't know. Um, But she lies about other things as well. She lies about having celebrities as friends. She lies about having gone places she has never been. Um, She's just sort of constantly telling these tales. And I try to dig and I try to push, I I try to sort of try to draw out more information from her, but she really pushes back. With the genetic condition, she told me that she can't talk to me about it until we get married. She's not willing to give me more information. I told her that I want to educate myself, and she's really pushed back. Um, With other things, I'll call her out and say, I don't think that's actually accurate, hon. And she'll either make excuses or just sort of poo-poo on what I've said and told me that I'm overreacting. But it's a constant theme in our interactions, both as a couple but with other people as well, that she's saying things that I know not to be true. And I love her, and I want her to feel like she can be honest and real with me, and I've tried to sort of push back. I've tried to tell her that I want her to be honest and real, but it hasn't gone over that well. I wonder if you have any advice on how to sort of help her deal with those insecurities, help her feel like she can be safe with me and that I'm not going to judge her and that, you know, I do love her and she can be honest and true with me. She is being honest and real with you. She's honestly nuts and she's really a liar. I don't think that at this stage of life, if she's in her 30s and she's still really a pathological liar and a fantasist, I don't think two years of you gently pushing back, you reassuring her that she doesn't need to lie to you, you eating her pussy, I don't think that's going to undo essentially decades of fantasizing, lying, and damage. Who knows what she was told by her wacky mom about who she is? Who knows what kind of lies Perhaps her wacky mom told her about her parentage, but clearly she retreated into something of a fantasy world in a shell and invented this persona, invented this person that she ain't, that she inhabits, and she needs the world to buy off on those fantasies for her to feel secure, for her to have some sense of place. And she doesn't see this as a problem. And if she doesn't see it as a problem – And if she doesn't see you seeing through it as a problem, your importuning her to stop lying isn't going to fix it. She needs to want to stop. She needs to get a fucking therapist. She needs to be on someone's couch for a very long time walking this back. And if she doesn't want to do that, you're not going to be able to leverage that out of her. I would find it exhausting to be with someone like this for more than 20 minutes. I had a boyfriend who was a pathological liar and that was exhausting. I couldn't take it. I I ended the relationship. 
Because if believing the shit he was telling me was the price of admission to be with him, I can't believe bullshit. That's why I wasn't a Catholic anymore. I'm not going to believe bullshit to get into some dude's pants or pretend that I believed in bullshit, right? There was a couple in our neighborhood when I was growing up when I was a kid where the wife in that couple sounds a lot like your girlfriend, pathological liar, fantasist, very detached from reality. And her husband got through it by pretending to be dumb. Pretending to be what now we would call somewhere on the spectrum, a little detached from reality, a little unable to pick up on social cues, the shit his wife would do right in front of him and it wouldn't register. People would be looking at each other like, wow, this woman is crazy and her husband doesn't notice. And But people who spent time alone with him, he was a totally different person. It was just when he was with his wife, he flipped a switch in his brain and stopped taking it in, anything that she said or did, just stopped registering and she thought she was – a saint who took care of and loved this very damaged man who needed her. He wasn't damaged at all. He was just biding his time until the bitch died, which is ultimately what happened. And then he had some peaceful years of getting to be himself. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the same person in a relationship with a crazy person who is biding her time until the crazy person kicks it. And the hard part about being with someone like this over the long term is that you have to pretend to believe this crazy shit that they unpack, that they spool out. And if you don't believe it, and if you call them on it, they will get angry at you. They will come at you and come at you and come at you until you pretend to believe the bullshit that they spin out too. They need you to believe it too, just like they believe it. She needs you to believe this shit just like she believes it. And if you refuse, it's going to really complicate your relationship with her. Because the thing about believing in lies is we can suspend our belief for the length of a movie or a play. You can't suspend your disbelief for the length of a marriage or a relationship. You're only two years into this relationship, 24 months invested in this fantasist. This is definitely a DTMFA situation. Dump the crazy motherfucker already. We're going to take a quick break from the calls just to uh, help an old friend out. Mark Oppenheimer writes about religion for the New York Times, and he is now the host, as everyone is. He is now the host of a new weekly podcast. Uh, this one from Tablet Magazine is called Unorthodox, a very unpious weekly look at Jewish life. So, Mark, how did you come to be a part of the podcast nation? <laughs> well, all the cool kids were doing it. Um, <laughs> Um, well, I work for the, so in addition to my work for the Times, um, I work for this amazing website called Tablet. It's at tabletmag.com. And basically, it's one of the very few religious websites that does not take religion seriously. Like, we report on Jews and those who love Jews with, I hope, a lot of skepticism, and we make fun of ourselves, and we actually think of religion as something that's not boring. Um, and we realized that the conversations we were having our editorial meetings where we said harsher things about Jews than most anti-Semites could ever dream up <laughs> would actually be the stuff of a good podcast. Like if people, it's sort of like, if you want the black truth, you go to the barbershop and right. if you want the Jewish truth, you hang out at our, at our meetings. And why not monetize it? You, exactly. you, know, you, the, you guys were sitting there having these conversations that you thought, Hey, we could, we could get in on that sweet, sweet stamps.com money. Yeah, I mean the audible.com, the stamps, you know, and <laughs> and and Jews we think about money all the time. You I mean, said what, it. You said it. I know, didn't. I'm the Irish what, Catholic in this conversation. <laughs> I, I did not go there. 
<laughs> no, I mean, what they say about men and sex, right? We're thinking about it 8,000 times a second. That's, that's us and money. And, you know, and podcasts by, are where the money is. And by us, you mean all of us, all people everywhere, not just Jewish people. We're all thinking about money because we all got to pay the bills. We all got to pay the bills. We got to put food on our families, as George W. Bush once said. <laughs> that's right. And then George and then George W. Bush painted a really treacly picture in, in oil colors of food on his family. You, have you seen his paintings? Uh, I have seen his paintings. Yes. Um, yeah. So. I, I think they should be in a museum with John Wayne Gacy's paintings. The world's <laughs> worst people paint. Uh, so right. what are people going to hear if they go check out your podcast and where can they find it? Okay. So the one that that goes up Thursday, August sixth is um, we interviewed Simon Doonan, who is of the uh, homosexual persuasion, you may know. Um, and he's this is the creative director of, of Barney's. He's uh, not Jewish. Uh, we know who Simon Doonan is because he's been on my podcast a bunch of times. Are you just mining my podcast for guests? Well, did you hear about his path to almost being circumcised on your podcast? No, I did not. Well, let's see, and that's the thing, Dan, because Gentiles don't think to ask their guests, are you circumcised or not? Whereas Jews, that's what we talk about. You know, gay people, we ask that question, but we don't put it quite that way. We say cut or uncut. I, well, after, and, after, you know, after we say sup on grinder <laughs> or scruff, then we say cut or uncut. Do you even bother to say sup on grinder? Uh, like, I'm too old to say anything right. on grinder. And I'm, I'm, I feel so blessed, hashtag blessed, that Terry and I have been together for 20 years and I didn't ever have to go on Grindr except for professional curiosity reasons to see what the kids were doing. Uh, so I have never supped anyone on Grindr. No. But I got, now I got to tell you, so we, one of our features is that we have, we have two guests every week. One is a Jewish guest and one is a Gentile guest. And because we feel like it's boring if we're just talking amongst ourselves. And so we're always going to have a Goy guest, a Gentile, non-Jewish guest. And our second guest is, is Simon. And of course, he's married to, to a Jewish fellow. And so what's interesting about interviewing someone like that is here, all of his in-laws, his mother-in-law, everyone, he's basically part of a Jewish family now. And getting his perspective on Jewish life and be, kind of being an honorary Jew, the fashion industry dominated by Jews because we tend to dominate things. Um, it was really kind of a very moving and funny uh, conversation. Can I, can I share something with you? Yeah. The first blowjob I ever gave to a Jewish, man. Jewish guy. So, so, the, cut, so I hope. Uh, yes, cut. So, yeah. so literally the first, you know, the first <laughs> load I ever ingested was a chosen load. Do, do, I, get, did it, do I get any did honorary Jew that? status for – for the DNA I chomped down? You on? get an honorary Jew status for working in another industry that we dominate. Which <laughs> you know, here's who doesn't get honorary Jew status, right? Farmers, we don't really, we, what, what can we give them? There's not a lot of intercourse there, right? Yeah, um, military, Jews, sports. If you were a baseball player, I can't really give you Jew wait, status. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, what about the Israeli Defense Force, which is a sexual obsession of my husband Terry's? Are you saying <laughs> Jews can't do army? Well, I mean, Israel, the rules are all off. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's a different, your Jews can do army in Israel. Jackie Mason, the comedian, used to say that Italians could fight on the streets, but put them in an army and they can't fight at all. Whereas <laughs> Jews are cowards on the streets, but put them in an army and they'll fuck you up. True that. So you're, True that. you're on my podcast now. And, yeah. you know, in podcast log rolling land, I will be on your podcast eventually, I assume, to talk about my botched circumcision, which I don't talk about very often, but I'll be happy to talk about it with you guys. As well as your inaugural teenage fellatio. That's true. The first blowjob yeah. ever. When I thought, hey, I must be pretty good at this. Look what happened. <laughs> 
uh, we would love you are going to be a Gentile of the week on our podcast. <laughs> but I want I'm going to throw a question at you because you're on my show, so you have to answer one of my callers' questions, and we're going to play it for you now. Okay. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old male living in uh, southern Alberta, Canada. And my question is about whether it's appropriate to describe going through a, like a faith crisis or a faith transition, you know, informing your family and friends and parents about that, if it's appropriate to compare that to coming out or not. So I was raised in the Mormon church, and as you may know, it's a very insulated, severe, fundamentalist environment. And, um, you know, I lost faith a couple of years ago and kept it a secret from my family for, you know, almost a year. And, um, I told my wife, but that's it. And, and eventually it, it got to the point where it, it was part of who I am to not believe in that anymore. And, uh, and the process of coming out was really difficult and required long conversations. And it's easiest to describe it as quote coming out. But, um, if I need to use a different word or a different term or find a different way to describe it, happy to do so. I'm just kind of searching for words. So any help? All right. Mormons aren't Jews, but technically, you know, and the archaeological record bears this out. Mormons and are the lost tribes of Israel, right? They came here in boats from, from the Holy Land and the Neophytes and the whoeverites had these big fights and Jesus came here. But Mormons are Jews. Mormons are descendants of the lost tribe of Israel. Mormons believe that Native Americans, that the people, the first people on this continent were Jews who, who somehow got in boats and came across the ocean and ended up in America, and that they're sort of spiritual heirs because the people who rediscovered the tradition are Mormons. But, but here's what's more interesting, and, and, right? And they built great pyramids, too, as the Jews do, right? As, <laughs> none, of, none of which we can find anywhere. We can't find the foundation of any of these great Jewish pyramids on, right. the, eastern, on the eastern seaboard anywhere right. because, you know, farmers in Delaware broke them down and made charming stone fences out of them at some point. Archaeology and DNA, modern science is proving tough for the Mormon narrative. <laughs> That's a kind way of putting it. Here's the really interesting thing is that Mormons are Jews in so many ways. Okay, Jews have dietary restrictions. Mormons have dietary restrictions. Okay, Jews refer to non-Jews as Gentiles. Mormons refer to non-Mormons as Gentiles. Jews have a promised land. It's Israel. Mormons have a promised land. It's Utah. Jews wear special underwear, kind of. They have these undergarments that Orthodox Jews wear. Mormons have special undergarments. And I believe like, and I believe Mormon men give their first blowjobs to Jewish volunteers. To, well, that's one you're going to have to put to, to your... Uh, just to, just to reestablish that link. <laughs> just to reestablish that. So, I mean, Mormons and Jews do get each other, yes. But not in the way that I got a Jew. Okay, but so not in the way. I mean, some do, but they're not, you know, as open about it. But that sort of goes to your caller's question, right? Okay, so they're not good Mormons, not good Jews. Yeah, let's go to the caller's question. Basically, it all boils down to he's realized he's an atheist. It's going to break the hearts of his crazy Mormon family. And all he asks is can he use coming out, that term, to describe what he's going through in his experience and, and telling his family about being an atheist? Can he say I'm okay, coming so out I'm as Okay, so I'm going to give my answer and then you're going to give yours, okay? Okay. Is that a good deal? Yeah, okay. perfect. So I actually think yes, and I think this for a very uh, particular reason – which is that, you know, coming out, so there is, is what you do when you're a little bit of afraid of how it's going to be received, when the community that you're doing it with uh, might reject you. And the reality is that according to our best sociological data, there are ways in which it's more difficult to be an atheist in America right now than to be a lesbian, a Jew, a Muslim, a left-handed person, a vegan. I mean, if you ask people in surveys 
would you vote for a person of persuasion X for president? Atheists are at the dead bottom, dead bottom. Where they belong. No, where <laughs> nobody trusts them. Even other atheists kind of would rather have a Christian in the White House than a fellow atheist. It's like they, they, something is sort of reassuring. Even atheists want to be hugged by George W. Bush. Because you want in the White House somebody who's itching for Armageddon. You want to give that guy the nuclear football. You, you just feel like he's the coach who's going to take you across the finish line. Okay, so and you think you can use coming out to describe it because so it's I think I mean reflects. so atheists. I will tell you, I've done a lot of work reporting in the in the atheist uh, world and underworld, and a lot of them really feel that it's a coming out process. And I'll tell you something: I have even talked to uh, queer atheists who have, I've talked to queer Muslim atheists who have said it was easier to come out to their families as queer than as atheist. And so for them, the real coming out was, I've lost my faith. I think, it, I think it's legitimate. And I'm going to say it's legitimate, too, for all the reasons that you cite. And I'm going to add one more, uh, not, not reason, a response to people who say, you can't use that, that's ours. And, and I have heard that. Like, people, have, people have talked about coming out, about having had abortions. Uh, people mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. marijuana decriminalization and legalization movement uh, have used coming, that, that metaphor, coming out, yep. to encourage people who smoke pot to be open yep. about it so it's not yep. all – the stereotypes about pot smokers that people still are invested in. And, and sometimes you hear back from, you know, gays and lesbians. You can't say that. That's our phrase. That's our phrase. What do we say when we describe our movement as a civil rights movement? Mm-hmm. And we, mm-hmm. get, we get pushback from some conservatives in the African-American community who say, no, no, no. There is the civil rights movement, capital T, capital C, capital R, capital M. And it is an insult to the civil rights movement for you people to describe what you're doing as uh, your civil rights movement or a civil rights movement. And we say, uh, sorry, it's a civil rights movement. And our civil rights yep. movement includes a lot of queers of color, trans people of color, gay men of color, uh, part of our movement. And we can use lowercase c, lowercase r, lowercase m to describe our movement. And I think well, and- we can't then turn around and say to people, but you can't use our metaphor around coming out. That's ours alone. That's not the way language works. And from the Jewy perspective, from the, the Hebrew Israelite perspective that I represent so well, there are Jewish activists who don't want to hear about other genocides, who don't want to talk about the, the, the genocide against uh, the, the Armenians. Um, they don't want to talk about other people having suffered Holocausts. And, and sometimes they don't want to talk about other people who suffered during the Holocaust. The machinery set up to kill the Jews swept up others. And other it, swept up, it swept up gay men and lesbians. It swept up gypsies. Uh, it swept up, you know, nationalists from all the countries that the Nazis rolled into. So mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, I've always felt, and a lot of my friends uh, in, in the Jewish journalism world have felt that the most important cause for us right now, or one of them, is recognizing the Armenian genocide. I mean, if we don't care about all genocides, we can't expect people to care about ours. And I think that, you know, that, that sort of sense of like, of a community of justice that's willing to get each other's backs is really important. And I think that, I mean, queers and atheists are very much, you know, um, I mean, yeah, they, they fight a lot of the same battles. They're not identical, but are there commonalities, and should they should they be generous with with the language? Absolutely, I completely agree. Mark Oppenheimer, he is the host of a new weekly podcast at Tablet Magazine or from Tablet Magazine called Unorthodox. You can find it at iTunes. You can find it tablet.com. What's your website? Yeah, ta- uh, tabletmag.com/unorthodox. Tabletmag.com/unorthodox. It's billed as a very unpious look at Jewish life, and I will be on that show soon talking about that first Jewish blowjob I ever gave. (laughs) First dick in my mouth, Mark. Chosen dick. Shalom, Dan. (laughs) Thanks for jumping on the phone. (laughs) Thanks. 
Hey, Dan, this is a 23-year-old lesbian. I'm calling about a problem that I have with my girlfriend. We've been together for three years. For most of our relationship, we lived in kind of the deep south, and we never showed any kind of PDA in public just because it didn't feel like quite safe in like the area that we were living. Um, but we recently just moved to Portland, Oregon, which is like a more liberal place. And I wanted to try to show like more affection in public. I mean, I hate sloppy, gross PDA, but I'm talking like hand holding or like an arm around the shoulder or whatever. And my girlfriend is still just really uncomfortable with it and just doesn't want to show any kind of affection in public, even the smallest amount. And that just kind of makes me really sad. It just makes me feel bad that we can't even, we have to act like we're friends basically in public all the time. Um, and, but I don't want, I, I haven't said anything cause I really don't want to make her do something that makes her uncomfortable or, you know, push her out of her comfort zone like that if she's not ready. And I mean, I know it's all kind of factors, but I still, it still just like really hurts my feelings. It makes me kind of sad for some reason, which is maybe selfish. I don't know. Uh, how long have you and your girlfriend uh, been in Portland? We've been in Portland for um, just a couple of months. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think you should give her a little more time to decompress from the, okay. the the stress and the homophobia of the place that you fled. Welcome to the Pacific Northwest. We are happy to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. But I would hope you have the kind of relationship with your girlfriend where you can broach a subject, this subject, and say, uh-huh. you know, PDA is not something we ever did at home because we didn't want to die. But yeah, I think it's something we should be able to do here. And I think the way you do this, I, I, I don't show her affection in public. Don't don't ambush her with lesbian PDA. But in Portland, you can show her others showing affection. The way okay. to broach the subject, I think, is to when the next time you're in a place where there are a couple of lesbians or a couple of gay guys who are doing the PDA thing unselfconsciously because Portland is a pretty great place like Seattle that way. Yeah. To point at it and say, I hope soon we feel comfortable enough in our new home, the city, that we can be as openly affectionate as they're being. And then have that conversation based on what you pointed out to her instead of taking her hand and putting her in the position in public of pulling her hand away because that's a reflex. And if you're yeah. going to be angry at anybody about, about that, about her pulling away, be angry at the culture that you fled that ground that into her, that carved that self-consciousness into her. Yeah. Pin the blame on the real culprit, on, on the real baddies here, which are the homophobes everywhere. But, you know, that concentration of homophobes back in the Deep South, that made her feel so uncomfortable in her own skin and so uncomfortable being herself and so self-conscious about who she is. She's the victim. Mm-hmm. And you and you can help her. You You sound more comfortable in your new home, but it's only been eight weeks. Give her time. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't want to push it, you know. But yeah. But push the conversation. I'm sure okay. you've been in Portland eight weeks. What what part of town do you live in? We live in like near Beaverton. Oh, great. That's a chill place. Uh, I'm sure you've probably seen some same-sex couples affectioning each other in public already. Definitely, yeah. So the next time you see, say, I hope that can be us soon. I hope we we begin to feel as comfortable here as they do soon. Okay. And then and make it about the both of you. Make it a we us thing. 
and make it an open-ended invitation to to a conversation and then listen to her and hear what she says. Okay. Yeah. I can do that. Good. And good luck and welcome welcome to Portland. We are so happy to have you. The more queers in the Pacific Northwest, the more Pacific Northwesty the Pacific Northwest gets. So welcome. Yes, yes. Okay. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight male from the Midwest, and I have a question and a thank you. I've been listening to the podcast for about two years, and a lot of your advice really stuck with me. Earlier this year, your advice directly saved my relationship. In April, my girlfriend of three years drunkenly cheated on me with a close friend of hers, and it was your perspective on infidelity and monogamy that helped me come to terms with it and preserve the relationship with the woman I love. And for that, I thank you immensely. It hasn't been easy, and there have been a lot of late-night conversations since, but because of this show, I feel like we're almost completely past this event. The only lingering question is what to do about her friendship with this guy. She has been asking me if I would be okay with her hanging out with him again. From her account of that night, he was the instigator. Even so, I said I would consider it if we all get together and talk about it so I can hear him say he messed up and it won't happen again. My girlfriend refuses to accept that and says she never wants to bring up what happened because she's afraid of the awkward conversation. I'm not convinced he doesn't have feelings for her and will try something again, even though the times I met him, he did seem like a nice guy. So my question is this. Am I asking too much to hear him say he knows he fucked up? I don't want my girlfriend to lose a close friend, but I can't let this guy back into our lives without him knowing that disrespecting my relationship won't be tolerated. So I listened to your call and I had, I have a suspicious nature. Would you say that that's true? For sure that's true. I, I sometimes – I don't even see the worst but I infer the worst. But backing up, uh, I think your request is perfectly reasonable. Uh, she wants him in her life and she wants you to sign off on that and be gracious about it despite the fact that she cheated on you with him. And all you ask in return is a little FaceTime with this guy so he can reassure you personally that he's not going to bone your girlfriend again. And to me, that seems reasonable. There's this huge thing that you're willing to forgive and move past. And there's this small thing that you're asking in return, some reassurance from the guy. And I would endorse that. Would you endorse that? This is Nancy Hartunian. She's the producer of the podcast. Every once in a while, I make her sit in front of a microphone because we sometimes have these conversations when we're, when we're not recording, Nancy and I will debate a call and then I'll have to answer and I want to put the debate on. So this time I'm making Nancy talk into a microphone against her will. <laughs> okay. So, so well, wait. We have to go back to what you immediately leapt to, your, your, suspicious, your, your suspicious accusation of this, this poor girl. Not, not a suspicious accusation. It's just a, a reasonable, logical inference that she wants to keep him away from the guy that she's told him this version of events that is exculpatory for and of her that she was drunk and that he instigated. He put the moves on her and she succumbed to his charms in that moment when she was vulnerable, right? And he may find in having a conversation with this guy that that's not his version of events. That there's, you know, I'm trying to, I'm wondering why he's willing to do this huge thing for his girlfriend, forgive, get past, patch it up. And he's asking this small thing in return. And she's like, no, no, no. And why would she be, no, no, no. You can't talk to him. No, no, no. It may, you know, okay, it'll be awkward. That's a, a reasonable reason. But the, the, the more obvious and logical answer would be there are two versions of this story. And she's told him one and she does not want him to hear the other one. 
That is possible. But the feminist in me understands her perspective because I don't like the two men going off and figuring this out together. Like, why can't she be the one that just says it's never going to happen again? And that's that. And, and whether this man tries to make the moves on her or not, it's up to her to say no if she wants to say no. It is a bit gorilla-y. It is a bit chest pumped out, bumping chests and my girl, leave my girl alone, dude. I've got to hear it from you that you're never going to touch my girl again. Yeah, there is a little bit of that to it. But he doesn't sound like a knuckleball. No, he doesn't. He really doesn't. He sounds like a sweet boy and he is really being open-hearted about the whole thing. But I can understand her reticence for sure. And there's no anger in his voice. Yeah. She – Cheated on him. They had a monogamous relationship. He understands from listening to the show. Lots of people out there in monogamous relationships where an infidelity happens or a cheat happens. And the only way you get to be in a truly long, long, long-term monogamous relationship is having the ability to forgive that and move past it because infidelity is going to touch almost every committed long-term relationship. So he's putting that into practice here. And I just don't see that he's asking much in return. Yeah. I guess it all depends on how that conversation went between the two of them like – if he was sounding like angry and, and like a, a dominating dude in that conversation, I could see her coming to the to that decision. It doesn't sound like he but, wants to pee on his girlfriend in front of the guy to show <laughs> that she's his. It sounds like he just wants like to shake hands with the guy and hear, I'm sorry and I won't do that again. And then he'll be totally fine with them hanging out together as friends. He's willing – like a lot of people can't get to this. They can forgive an infidelity and one of their – demands is that their partner never see that other person ever again. They cut them out of their life. It's rare even in, you know, forgiving an infidelity land to find people who forgave and then signed off on the friendship continuing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I I hope I, if that conversation happens, I just hope he calls back and lets us know how it goes. (laughs) So I've beaten you into submission. (laughs) No, I don't know. I, as always, I see both sides of it. Like I, I don't That's immediately. What's so exhausting about you? I know it's so boring. I, I don't immediately assume that she's trying to keep them apart because she's got you know a secret that she was the one that jumped on him. I don't necessarily agree with that. But I can also see if I were in her shoes, I would feel a little squicked by this whole idea of it plays into my really, man going to talk to this guy. But her version of events really plays into I think anti-feminist notions of female sexual agency. I was drunk. I was helpless. He made the moves. What could I do? I succumbed. Yeah, that's bullshit. For sure that's bullshit. You know, this narrative in the culture that women never get horny, never want to cheat themselves, never instigate, are only instigated upon, that the story that she told just affirms that, frankly, anti-feminist, women as property, women as helpless little damsels, bullshit that the culture pounds into people's heads and that, and that's where she went. And it just, maybe that happens. Sometimes that happens and maybe it didn't. And that's why she doesn't want him discussing the details of that encounter. Maybe, maybe she should own it for sure. She should be like, yeah, I fucked that guy. That's on me. It was really fun. It's over. (laughs) Actually, I have some video on my phone. You want to see it? (laughs) We make – you guys, listening people, we we make up all sorts of shit about you. We just make it all up. No, we don't. (laughs) But more of you should send us video via mail at savagelove.net to to illustrate your problems. Or our imaginations run wild. And if any of you have used the ovipositor that we talked about a couple of weeks on the show, please video that and get that to us immediately. What's our consensus opinion here? What should he do? You have to tell somebody what to do. They're not asking you to articulate both sides of the problem. They're not asking you to see it from all angles. Tell me, Nancy, I'm this guy. Tell me what to do. 
I think he should press one more time and say, it would make me feel so much more comfortable if I could talk to him and just really look him in the eye and make sure that he's not planning on making another move on you. Um, but if you really can't stand that idea, I won't press anymore, but I want you to look me in the eye and assure me that this is never going to happen again. That's where he should leave it. He can't demand it. We live in a wired world. He can't control who she's friends with and she can't control who he texts messages, who he contacts via Facebook to say, Hey, look, this thing happened. I've forgiven my girlfriend. I forgive you. Just want to hear from you that it's not going to happen again. Yeah. It's a free country. And I don't think he needs her permission to send that text. You roll your dice, you move your mice. Good luck. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk use. I am a married 28 year old bisexual heteroamorous woman living in Portland, Oregon. I'm calling because I'm currently sitting on a hiring committee for a position that's open in my workplace. The other day we interviewed a 25 or 26 year old female who, when asked what her proudest accomplishment in life was, she said that it was getting married to a wonderful man, uh, which is great. And overall, you know, she was a pretty strong candidate, had some good experience considering her age, uh, and we were considering pushing her through the next round. I was very turned off by that answer, and despite her experience, I just really had a hard time with it. I felt like, you know, by being a young woman and her proudest accomplishment is getting married, uh, it just really showed potentially a lack of maturity and that she's really overall very green when it comes to life and life experience. Uh, am, am I a jerk here? I thought, you know, for me, I guess, as a proud feminist woman, I would hope that every woman out there and every man for that matter would have proud accomplishments that are very much on their own two feet. Uh, I was very turned off by the fact that this accomplishment was her tethering her woman horse to a man wagon, and I very much wanted to see something that was maybe a little more independent. Uh, I'd really love to know your thoughts on this. Am I the asshole here, or is it kind of an immature answer? Some of my coworkers thought that maybe I was being a, a little bit judgy in my response to her, and I'd just love to know your thoughts. I think you should cut her some slack. She's young. She's 26. Maybe she just got married last week and maybe her wedding was one of those massive Broadway shows of a wedding and it was a huge production and she's proud of pulling that off. Maybe staging her wedding tapped into all of her relevant professional skills and that's why she mentioned it. I think you should push her through. If she was qualified and all of her other answers were, were good, you should push her through. If you wind up working with her, I do think at some point you should, as the older, wiser 28-year-old woman to her younger, more naive 26-year-old woman, if you establish a rapport, if you get to be friends, you should one day tell her that in future when she's asked this sort of question in a professional setting, nobody wants to hear about her personal life. Nobody wants to hear about her romantic successes. That what if somebody in the room had just been divorced? What if somebody in the room – was a feminist who thought a woman mentioning securing a man as her ultimate achievement wasn't a great selling point. And tell her that when people ask about your accomplishments in a business setting, in a job interview, they want to hear about your professional accomplishments or some relevant life experience. And the man you bagged is not a relevant life experience when it comes to job applications. Kind of unprofessional. And just give her that friendly download. Give her that input. If she gets the gig and you guys 
establish a rapport. Otherwise, just shrug it off. She's 26 years old. She doesn't she hasn't benefited from the two years of wisdom and life experience that you have benefited from, and hopefully she'll come around. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old male. I live in New York City, and I'm actually calling about a friend of mine. So a friend of mine, this is actually my best friend. Um, we went to college together, lived together for two years during college, uh, live in the same city, and are very close. He recently got engaged, uh, I think actually just a couple days ago, and I don't know how else to say it, but other than that, he just is not ready for this. They are in a monogamous or monogamous relationship, but he cheats on her regularly. And it's not in a way that seems like accidental or like he made a mistake. Um, it seems like it's just part of the way he wants the relationship to be. Uh, he's not open with her about any of this currently. Um, he's tried to this idea of being in an open relationship in the past, and she's very sort of closed off to it. The other complication is that, obviously, I would have preferred to have talked to him about all this before he decided to get engaged, but he did it without telling me, uh, and from what it sounds like, he got engaged without really telling any of his close friends. He talked to her family, um, he talked to some of his family members, none of them really sat him down and really like talked to him about this and thought about who he was. We all really love her. They've been together off and on for seven years and they want to have kids together. So on the one hand, it makes sense. Um, and on the other hand, I don't think he seems like he's being honest with her about what he realistically thinks his future is going to look like. And there's a part of me that wants to tell him to slam the brakes on and another part of me that says, it's not really any of my business. And if they work it out, then... I'll be happy for him no matter what. Personally, I don't think I could be f friends with someone who was treating their girlfriend or fiance or wife like this. Not somebody who slipped up and made a mistake and cheated and stared into the abyss and righted themselves and knocked it off and, and is doing right by their spouse or their girlfriend or their boyfriend or their fiance, even if they didn't disclose it. I don't think you necessarily have to disclose. You don't have to necessarily unburden yourself and burden the other person. Sometimes ignorance is marital bliss. But a serial adulterer, someone who cheats again and again and again, know thyself. You have to know yourself before you go into marriage. He asked for what he needed, which was an open relationship, and she said no. And that is the moment at which he should have said, it was nice to know you. Thank you. Goodbye. We are not right for each other. We will make each other miserable. I will torment you by cheating on you. I will, I will make you miserable cheating on you. And you will make me miserable trying to force me to be what I'm not or what I'm incapable of being, which is monogamous. So thank you. Goodbye. Monogamy, I believe, should be opt-in. It's a credit to your friend that he tried to have a conversation with her to make it an opt-in, an active discussion instead of a default setting. But once he ascertained that she was not down with – non-monogamy, that's like figuring out that the person that you've been dating and serious about wants children and you don't or wants to marry and you don't or is very, very religious and will expect you to convert or participate actively in raising your children in their faith. Those are irreconcilable differences. Some people marry and then discover those irreconcilable differences, which is why irreconcilable differences is grounds for divorce. Why you hear that phrase – used in divorce court a lot. But if you know 
of irreconcilable differences going in. You shouldn't fucking go in. And you should say all that to your friend. Don't marry this woman. She's wrong for you. You're wrong for her. You're currently doing wrong by her and you are wrong for her. And then you have to ask yourself after you speak your piece to your friend before the wedding. And that's one of the jobs of friendship is to speak your piece to somebody when you think they're making a mistake around a lifetime commitment. We need our friends sometimes to give us the reality check, hold us to a higher standard, or tell us the person we're thinking about marrying is toxic if we're too love-besotted or desperate to see it. Then you need to go ask yourself if he persists, if he continues down this path, if he continues to be a cheating, lying sack of shit, cheating piece of shit, CPOS, whether you want to be friends with someone who treats the person most important to him in his life like this, how's he going to treat the people who are less important to him who are in his life? People like you, his friends, if this is how he treats his wife. I wouldn't want to be that person's friend long enough for him to get around to betraying me too. Hey, Dan, I'm just calling about your last episode in which the woman was calling about wanting to support her friend, but also call out maybe her uh, participation in her husband's affair. Uh, I recently just went through a very similar thing. My wife cheated on me and then told me about how it was largely my fault because I'm such an angry, controlling jerk. At first, I bought into it, and it made the whole thing much worse until I talked to a couple's counselor we had seen, and she told me that this was a textbook behavior for uh, a lot of cheaters. Uh, sometimes we think of forgivable affairs where someone makes a mistake and then begs for forgiveness on their knees, but in a lot of cases, the cheater will know their action is so bad that they have to come up with a way to justify it, and they do that by insulting and saying cruel and terrible things about their spouse. The worst thing this woman could do right now is try to point out these things because I'm sure right now her husband is saying all sorts of awful things about their relationship and her in general. And right now you really just need to listen and support. Hi, I'm calling about episode 461 and the poor lady with the herpes that apparently works with an entire group of asshats that think they can discuss her vagina at work. I think that she needs to contact human resources, and I would say that that's a big old case of sexual harassment because I'm pretty sure we're not allowed to discuss everyone's vagina at work. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in regards to the woman in episode 461 whose coworkers were asking her if she had HSV2. Um, I think the bigger issue here is why the hell are her coworkers asking her if she has herpes? Uh, what kind of place does she work where people feel that it's okay to ask that in a professional setting? She mentioned earlier that she had stood up for this girl when uh, when people were talking shit about her. So it kind of makes me wonder, like, what kind of terrible place do you work in? Maybe that's a bigger issue. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you have a question or call for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. And a quick programming note from the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth about those phone calls to 206-302-2064. Please speak up. Please don't call from a moving car. Please don't call from the subway. We have to have pretty decent sound quality to be able to broadcast your calls and not torture the rest of the listeners. So sound quality matters. Get to a quiet place, preferably a landline, if you're one of the few people on earth that still has one of those, and give us a call, 206-302-2064. 
follow me on Twitter at fake Dan Savage. Follow Mark Oppenheimer at Twitter at Mark Opp One. That's M A R K O P P One. His show, his new podcast, Unorthodox. Look for it on tablet. Speaking of Twitter, contemnable tweets. I listen to the Savage Lovecast every single day while being aware that I will never have a reason to call. Those are some famous last words, contemnable. That's right up there with God himself couldn't sink this ship. You say something like that on Twitter, and pretty soon you will find that you have a reason to call the Savage Lovecast. The Savage Lovecast, speaking of, is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.